Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. All right, so Shabbat Shalom, sisters. This is Mayana, and we're going to pick up on the third, it's our third session, um, and everybody has their workbooks, hopefully. If you do, it's the appeal to emotion um, part of our of our symposium. In this first session, we, we laid some foundation work down. We um, basically established that there are four ways that polygamy was practiced in Hebrew culture. Obviously, none of these sessions are geared towards vilifying, demonizing, or in any other way making it seem as if um, extended households were not a part of our culture. Obviously, it was. Instead, it's um, the purpose of these sessions is to understand how, why, when, and under what conditions we extended our household. So we looked at in the scriptures and we looked at our records, and there are four ways that, that extended households occurred Hebraically. That's not to say they don't happen differently in other nations or among other people. But if what we want to do is emulate Hebrew culture, we're going to look at how it was done in Hebrew culture. Hebraically, there were three ways. Um, we saw that a woman who owned the reproductive labor of another woman could ask her to have a child for her, and that child would count as her progeny instead of the handmaiding or, or being servants. Child, it would be the child of the legitimate wife, and um, we labeled this surrogacy. These women were surrogates. They did not even partake in naming these children. These children belonged to the mistress, the master, the female um, legitimate wife who owned them. The second way was that if there was a widow, a woman who was married to a man and he he died, and she had no children, the nearest male kin was obligated to her. Now, this is called the law of the leveret. It's understood as the law of the leveret. What's interesting about the law of the leveret is that it obligates this man with no consideration as to whether or not he is already married or already has a family. It's still his obligation to, to do this for his deceased. Um, kinsmen. He has to do it by law. So this is actually the only place where there's a law involved, and there's a law that means you have to extend your household. This is the only place where there's a legal, um, any legal implications at all, and it's for the protection and the right of this woman. And because it's a law, there is a, there's an exit clause. Um, there's a, a clause that says that he can forfeit this obligation and it'll pass to the next kinsman. 
But if he does, like this is not a light thing because again, it's a law and it's a well, it's an obligation. So if he does forfeit this obligation, she will publicly humiliate him. It's uh, described that she unleashes his sandal in front of everybody and spits in his face. And it says this is what happens to a man who will not do this. Uh, but from that point on, he's no longer obligated. He can do whatever he can do what he what he needed to do. But but the next and the next of ten will um, assume the responsibility for that widow. An example of that is really comic. All of you know the story. It's what happens to Ruth when Ruth um, becomes a widow. She meets up. She Naomi believes that. Boaz is the closest of Ken. She goes, go to him, he's our kinsman. He'll cover you. And it turns out that Boaz is like, I can't do that. There's someone closer than me. So he has to go, and he goes in front of everybody. So he goes to the steps and tells them, listen, you know, this is what's going down. You don't just get all of Naomi's property. You have an obligation to that woman. You have an obligation to Ruth. And this man isn't willing to take on Ruth. He literally says it will complicate his own inheritance to take on Ruth. So he declines that. And that's how it moves to the next of kin, the next closest kinsman, which is Boaz. So this law of the leveret works in that way. It's also like the first one is surrogacy, it's initiated by the woman. The second one is leveret, it is also the privilege of the woman. The third way it occurs that households can be extended is. when a warrior is commissioned to go to war, the Most High says, I need you guys to go out and conquer this other nation. All the warriors who return victorious from war are entitled to spoil. That's in the law. It says if you come, you are entire, entitled to spoil. Spoil is all things that are valued in this, in this conquered land. That would include um, the land. It includes um, jewelry. It includes Weaponry, it includes um, the animals, and yes, it includes um, the women. And it's very specific about the women. Young, un- they haven't been known by any other men. That's, of course, where women are the most viable. They haven't been defiled by a, by a man. So in this case, a warrior can take a woman from these conquered lands. This law, again, does not take into consideration if that man is already married. So he still has this privilege still passes to him and with no consideration as to whether or not he's already married. So in this case, a warrior, and let's, let's, let's be mindful, and let's keep it on honey. The scripture says a warrior, returning victorious from war, not returning back from Walmart or from the, the you know, the tire store, wherever guys go. It's not that. You have to go to war, live, conquer a land, and then, yeah, if you bring back a, a woman who's never been touched by a soldier from, you know, from the, fine. That's what the, that's what the scripture says. And um, so that's the, that's the third way the households were extended. And what the culture condition was um, for us Hebraically. The fourth way is the way that we hear about the most often, the way um, kings practice it, the way King David practiced it, King Solomon practiced it. A lot of our, Kings did that. Understand this. The the part where we move into where this is the privilege of kings. Our system of kings is necessarily a pagan system. We set up our system of kings 
and modeled it after pagan. It's a pagan practice. You have, that, that really has to be understood. That is first in Samuel, I want to say for Samuel, when we say that we don't want to have judges anymore, we want a king. We state specifically that we want to be like other nations. We say that we are going to reject the Most High and we want to be like other nations. So we set up this mortal system of kings that is 100% like other nations. And once it's like other nations, it's pagan. It's a pagan thing. We say we reject the Most High and we want to do this pagan thing and be understood like other nations. So this practice of kings that is being done by the other, um, that we do, we do like other nations. And as we say, we're, tra- we're trying to emulate the way extended households gets established hebraically. Okay, it's, it's, it's without a doubt that other nations have practiced polygamy and, and have their own reasons and ways for extending their households. Um, but our purpose is to reclaim our reasons and ways and methods. Um, and we talked about how, well, and as we went into the next session, we started to kind of interrogate the suppositions. After we made our foundation, which we did here, we went into what those suppositions were. And it's basically a lot of who done it. You know, it's like, you know, he did it first, I want to do it, he did it. So, okay, well, let's look at the people and places um, where we find that it has been done. That's in your books, it's in your um, workbook. It's probably under session one or two. Um, I think the first one is where the, the supposition is that the Most High himself um, identifies as a polygamist. He says, oh, you know, he, he's married to sisters, Judah and Israel. Now, obviously, Judah and Israel are one nation. Judah and Israel become separate only because they're supposed to be this point where Judah is really off and the Most High is hoping to get this other, <laughs> so there's a separation. There's no way that all of Judah can reign over the other branches being off. So 11, nine and a half, kind of beset and create the northern kingdom. But instantaneously, there's like never a, a good moment. Like this, this, this newly formed uh, northern kingdom immediately falls into idol worshiping, <laughs> immediately wrong. So the Most High has to deal with this second side of the one nation. So it's not that the Most High is polygamist in any way. It's still dealing with the one nation. It's still dealing with Israel, um, the children of Jacob, who have just decided to show they their, to show out and disobey in new and exciting ways. But it's still the one nation of Israel. Also, there's the um, idea that the New Testament Messiah, his son, also engages in this type of polygamist um, identity by saying that he's married to churches, like individual churches. So being married to all of these churches in a similar way means he's married to to different um, preachers, different people. 
Um, and then there's the idea that he's married to the men. And obviously the men, so they have a personal relationship, but individual men. And again, so that kind of, again, lends itself to the idea that there is multiple people that the New Testament Messiah is married to, but it lends itself to the original um, problem with that, just saying that with the Mosai, that he's married to Israel. <laughs> so it's still married to the one body, the fact that we um, chop up these bodies so that we can better make sense of them doesn't mean that the Most High doesn't see us as one body. Um, that's also extended to the idea that later the most high, uh, the, uh, the other nations get grafted in or whatever, and the idea that the Most High is the Most High of everybody. I mean, obviously he's, he's the Most High to us, but he created all things, therefore he is the Most High to all of creation, which is true, and that's fair, and that has to be acknowledged. But the difference is that the relationship between the Most High and the other nations is different than the relationship he has with us. It's only Israel that is treated as a bride. The other nations are taught by that bride in the similar way that the, the, a father or a husband might have with his wife, and the wife's responsibility is to teach the, the children that are part of this um, family, I have someone talking to me in the inbox. Um, give me a second if I can try to give her a chance to um, find us. I'm going to tell her to be in the form. And hopefully, she'll get that. Uh, okay, so. That was why using the most using the Messiah as a another example of polygamy just kind of didn't hold water. Then there was Adam did it. Adam, there is a narrative that suggests that prior to Eve, he was married to Lilith, and that Lilith was created in the same manner that he was created, and for this reason, um, ladies, did you guys come to this using some method other than the link that's in the forum? No. No, right? Okay. Um, Just call the number and put the code in. And then push, if you're a guest, push on for guests. Okay, I'm going to send a message into the chat room. Oh, please help that, sister. He is having difficulties somehow um, with it. Do you guys see that I'm just I need to help? Any chance to help? Not sure how. I don't, I'm not really sure which, I'm going to tag her in the original link and see if. Uh, okay. 
in, with, um, in the case of Adam, Lilith was created, according to this narrative, she was created in the same way. She wasn't taken from a rib. She was taken from the ground. She received the breath of life. All the things were done in the exact same way as Adam. And um, there was, like, literally trouble in paradise. She didn't want to be submissive to him. She didn't want to be in subjection to him. She walked off. And even after having angels ask her to return to her husband, she was just not with it. Um, but that is not, that's not heavily supported in the Hebrew canon. It does exist in other Mesopotamian narratives. It, it is very heavily referenced in all of these other um, ancient texts, um, not less so in ours, uh, without going too far into um, this narrative again. Basically, at the end of the day, the point is that even if she existed. She existed before Eve and not at the same time as Eve. And for this reason, it would not have been a polygamous situation because by the time Eve is on the scene, she has Adam all to her onesie. So this is not, um, there's no law against having a wife after another woman. or And it doesn't call itself polygamy when you do that. Okay, good. Looks like um, she successfully returned to us. So let's have a little yay moment about that. Um, Abraham did it. Now, did Abraham do it? We discussed at length that what Abraham did or what Sarah did fell under the culture criteria, the culture condition of celibacy, and um, briefly that this did not um, have the same condition for what what is being reimagined as polygamy and modernity. That's on the previous um, call. And so with this just being the review, I'm not going to go into all those details again, but you'll find all those details in that call. We did the same with Jacob, explained that it was similar with Jacob, that that is also a surrogacy uh, culture condition. For those of you who are joining us, um, we are just kind of quickly going over everything that we've already done. Um, we discussed whether or not Moses did it, whether or not Gideon did it. Gideon is like being um, a warrior and having had 70 uh, sons, all of whom get mastered by the one son. So, But he did, without a doubt, have a lot of wives specifically says he had a lot of children because he had a lot of wives. There's no disputing that he also went to war. So we discussed that being a culture condition as well. Elkanah uh, was a priest, which is interesting because it's usually generally, generally understood that a priest wouldn't have more than one wife, but Elkanah is um, Samuel's father. He is Hannah's husband, and Hannah is the is the ancestress who notoriously prays for a son after being like she has this other woman who's married to her husband that has children that's miserable to her and is making her miserable. And Elkanah really doesn't understand. He's like, how can you be so miserable? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And he just really doesn't get it. And um, Hannah prays for a son. She gets 
Samuel. Uh, but this priest has two wives. And what's interesting about that is that when we go back, it doesn't say why or under what conditions, but it does. The the scriptures do tell us something very interesting about the priest. Although the priests have the strictest of restrictions on who they can marry, meaning they can't be a widow, they can't be not a virgin, they can't be, you know, they can, yeah, they they can't be a lot of things. Um, but the law of the leveret still applies to them. They're not allowed, they're, they're not exempt from that. So they would still, that would still be a cultural condition that would extend a priest's household because the law later tells us, I believe it's in Ezekiel and not Ezra, that um, a priest can only take a widow if she was the widow of a priest, right? So that would, and of course, another priest would likely be the nearer kinsman because that was a, a very elite, kind of very closed circuit occupation in Israel. Like, so if if uh, you were, if your husband was a priest, the other priests are very likely to be very close kinsmen of your of your husband because it was like the Aaronic priesthood, and they were you know, these these were not unrelated people within the tribe within within the branch of Levi. You'll find that I don't use the word tribe. I don't like the word tribe. I don't think that it it's, it's an appropriate word. So I branch is the word that I use for that. Even though I catch myself saying tribe because it's so common, but I don't like that word. Um, then, of course, there's Samuel, um, Samson, not Samson, David and Solomon, who are notoriously um, partaking of different women. We know that we talked about, in our, since we've already reviewed it, that this happens because it's what kings do. It's part of this pagan kind of institution of what kings do. If you're from another nation, these are the types of things that happen with those kings. Accumulating women, not a big deal. Uh, for David, we showed uh, there were some very interesting facts about the way David accumulated his women. A lot of this, there was a lot of um, political reasons that David or Solomon and Solomon would have brought in more women. Uh, it's the clearest with Solomon because it literally says that when Solomon made an affinity with the Sire, he took his daughter. It was part and parcel to the agreement, to the peace treaty that Solomon was making with this Sire, where David had a very um, complicated and violent reign because he was always at war. His, his reign was filled with bloodshed. Um, Solomon didn't. Solomon had a very, very peaceful reign. Nobody really wanted any problems with Solomon. David had pretty much scared the bejesus out of everybody. Solomon just kind of coasted. Solomon um, had control over trade routes. He had control over major spaces that people really wanted to have access to. If you wanted to have access to those spaces, you wanted to be cool with Solomon. And these kings came and they made arrangements with Solomon. And it's not it's not uncommon, it's not a uh, crazy thing to basically throw in your daughter when you made these contracts. It's exactly what they did. These kings got together, they made agreements, they did not throw in a princess or treatise, but we do. It's part of their customs. We know that this is part of their customs and not what 
Hebrews um, identify as what is appropriate for kings, because we know what if if the Most High was when the Most High was going to establish mortal kings for us, how he imagined our kings would behave and what they would do. They would be the husbands of one wife. They wouldn't multiply women. They wouldn't multiply horses or gold or anything else. They didn't do all this multiplying under Hebraic conditions. This is not Hebraic kingship model. This is not a Hebraic kingship model that David and Solomon and anyone after that, or Saul for that matter. Interestingly, that's nobody ever brings up Saul, but um, Saul had a concubine also. But none of these um, models are Hebraic marriage models. These are, or kingship models. These are uh, deliberately and specifically pagan models. So that brings us to today's lesson. Okay. Appeal to emotion. Um, what you'll find is that these are kind of all sectioned out into how, what kind of appeal is being done. You know, if someone is making a point that he, that Saul differentiated between his own opinions and the commandments of the Most High, which is true. Um, when we're talking about Saul of the New Testament, Saul did absolutely, and I, I give him my I give him cool points for that, too. Uh, <clears throat> whenever he was speaking for himself, he did make time to say, um, speak I, but not the most high, or I speak this type of mission and whatever. But when I was speaking about Saul this time, I was speaking about the first king of Israel. Our first king was Saul, who was actually a Benjamite and wasn't from the tribe of Judah at all. Our second king was his son. David is actually our third king in the United um, Kingdom. But that was a great point, and don't be sorry because it means you're listening to me. So I appreciate your input. Continue to do that. Uh, so now we're going to, oh, I was explaining to you why they're called these things. There's these appeals to past precedent, the appeal to emotion. These are all um, logic. These are all logical paradigms. When you do formal debate, the way you approach your argument has a has a label, and these are all of the suppositions that we come into contact with, and these are what these particular suppositions would fall under in formal debate. So this one is an appeal to emotion, and it's when a speaker has a position and wants you to agree with them by tugging at your heartstrings or tugging at your worst fears or or shaming you. It's, it's, it's the... It's the, it's the part of rhetoric that makes you, when you hear something like, wow, that's a really good speaker. He made me feel something. That's a, a person that's appealing to your emotion. And there are, there are several suppositions that we are confronted with that appeal to our emotion. And we're going to go over those in this session. Those of you who are on the phone, I would love to hear from you. I'm going to try to pay closer attention to what's being typed in the chat area so that I can respond to that as well. I want to thank everyone who's been patient with me because I'm still not feeling well, and um, I'm, I'm sure that kind of is coming through a little bit. Um, I appreciate your patience. So the first in this session, um, this appeal to emotion, those types of emotions of fear, flattery, ridicule, spite, pity, 
shame or you know wishful thinking um that and, and this kind of sense that baby I'm doing this for you you know it's for the woman this idea that this is not selfish at all on their part and it's one hundred percent for you one of the, the suppositions is that it's a a sense of sisterhood with shared obligations to the family now it's really kind of hard to argue that right if you if you have a, a, a household where there are women who have a collective sincerity for this culture and for this truth, obviously good um, bonds of sisterhood should be present. Okay, but the idea that that is the space and place where sisterhood is rooted or should be rooted or has any particular it's it's manipulative. It's manipulative to suggest that that's what sisterhood looks like or where sisterhood comes from, specifically because there are no examples of that being the hotbed for sisterhood. Our sisterhood, I've, there are no, there are no um, examples of where sisterhood is organized around a man, like that, that our sisterhood is dependent upon or organized around just a man in the middle of our sisterhood. It's a really weird kind of um, supposition at all. It, it really, our sisterhood is really kind of separate from their polygamy. It's not, those two things don't have to, those two things are not married in any way. And it's, it's very much a manipulative um, and very suggestive thing to say. <clears throat> so um, does anybody have any experience with that supposition or anything to say um, about what I'm saying about that supposition? Okay. Not particularly. I'm sorry? Okay. Um, the the next one is um, this concern that you have that there's another so you know that she had that assumption. It's a fair. It sounds like it's something to, and I I think that it's important to um, to accept that it's a fair assumption. If someone came to you and said, "Listen, you know, all the sisters should be on, on one accord. They should work into this one goal." It's a, it, it sounds good. It's a it's a great goal, and there's no you would be a horrible person to kind of to to spurn that and say, oh no, who wants to be cool with the sisters in my house? Like you don't want to say that. It's not something you would think to say. But the idea of that's what our sisterhood looks like. That's a really weird supposition. Our sisterhood is not predicated on whether or not we're all sharing the same man. Like it, there's no other context where that makes any sense to us. That, yeah, I'm gonna share this guy because I'm. This is like this is you know me and my friends are cool like that. So because I'm so cool with this other person, I'm gonna definitely share my dude with it. It's just so weird. I can totally be your sister without sleeping with your husband. And so I, I, you can push this vacuum cleaner for me without sleeping with my husband. I really don't understand. If I have a child and you come over to assume some of the duties that I would, I can't do. You can totally do that without laying up with my husband. That is not what what is indicative of our sisterhood. It's just a really weird. It's a, definitely a manipulative 
kind of um, language that kind of says, if you aren't in this paradigm, then you don't understand sisterhood. That's not exactly, it's it's manipulative. It's, it's, it's not, those two things don't follow. Okay, so um, the other point is all the extra women need to get into the kingdom too. And you guys heard that? There are these extra, like, miscellaneous women who have to get into the kingdom too. Like, you're married, you have this great deal, but what about the extra women? What about them? They have to get into the kingdom too. I'm totally confused as to who these extra women are. Let's look at the, at this from from two spaces. Um, let's. Oh, there's a comment in the chat that says, "For by joining an established family, I would gain a sister. Whereas in the world, the females I once hung out with are rats that, that I cannot. That's sure that I cannot remain set apart. There, there is that. Um, for the for the first point, it does seem as if yeah, you know, you bring in this woman who has a shared culture and value system as you do, and you can share this man without um, complication, you know. But that, again, has nothing to do with our sisterhood. It has to do with the comfort of the male who is at the center of this marriage paradigm. It's not really as concerned with what kind of sisterhood you guys are having. You just aren't causing a complicated and a hostile environment for his um, polygamy setup, that our sisterhood is not dependent on whether or not you guys are sharing a husband. There's nothing. And, and, and on top of that, it's interesting. It's really interesting that this idea that in the world women would argue and fight and there would be this rivalry, but in the truth those things don't exist. It's a really interesting supposition considering the fact all of our examples say the opposite. All the examples of where women are sharing a man, they are pretty much in the throes of some kind of rivalry or some kind of... And, uh, Rachel is said to be envious. We know for a fact that they went into this full-on rivalry um, over having children for Jacob. The household with Abraham became instantly disrupted by Hagar and, and her, her little you know, tendencies. Um, Hannah... We were just talking about Hannah. Hannah had to deal with another woman in her household. Again, disruption. These are all examples from our records. This is not the world. This is our records. These are our people and our circumstances and situations. So this notion that it's different, that, you know, you're going to be different. Different from whom? Different from Sarah? Sarah, whose daughters we are? That's not going to happen. Sarah kicked over. She said, you have to go. You're not. You're going to be like Sarah, and have that um, response to being disrespected. You're going to be like Hannah, and have this sorrowful spirit. If there's a woman who's being mean to you, and and having and bragging about her relationship with your husband and those children, that happened in our records. That's not happening in the world. So it's again, it's a it's a weird kind of retake on reality because that's not even in our records, explained in any other way. Can I add something to that? Of course. Uh, this is Ladaya, if you guys don't know, but um, I am in a family of nine, and I have lots of sisters, and as we are getting older, I am um, reconnecting with them in a sense, and uh, this is age gap, so um, 
I'm getting to see sisterhood a little bit different um, at an older age um, and rebuilding that sisterhood and making it stronger. And it usually helps me with the scripture when we talk about sisterhood and and how we're supposed to be treating one another in Israel. Uh, But this is, you know, biological standpoint. There's no guys in between us. There's, you know, I'm married. They have, you know, significant others or whatever. Um, We don't, they usually don't come up. It doesn't affect our relationship usually. Uh, we, I mean, we hang out, but uh, in general, we focus on, you know, our bonds and helping each other out, having good conversations to edify one another. So it's interesting that we would compare it to the world and the fact that, you know, a friend that turns into like a sister-type bond, we would, you know, have problems with, you know, sharing a man or something like that. But looking into, you know, Ken by blood, like, you know, we, I'm sure your sister would be okay with, uh, you know, her her husband, you, you know, you stepped on it. And there's even law against that um, for, you know, a man to take two sisters. So it's interesting that that is in combo and comparison between the world and in Israel, um, but not just looking at the typical relationship between sisters and uh, the bonding processes and, um, you know, the relationships that can be established and the growth and security in that. So when we look into Israel, we shouldn't, we, we should definitely be looking at those same points, but, um, when we attach it to having um, shared a man or something, um, and, yeah, it's kind of outrageous to me as well. But right, it's it's really it's a really curious thing to wrap up sisterhood in this particular ideology. It's like to kind of say you're not being a good sister if you're not doing this. It's a very manipulative. Again, this is why it's, it's why it's labeled under this appeal to the emotion because it's supposed to be kind of needling at at the needling at you from a very personal space. Here's the thing. Women come into the truth a completely different way than the men do. Completely different way. The men get recruited with oh, you can have all these women, you're a king, you know, everything is everybody else's fault. You know, Deuteronomy 28 is the reason why um, you've not had the successes that you want to. The black woman is, you know, it's her fault too. Um, And they get to come in with all of that. They come in super affirmed. They come in super, um, you're about to have all of these wonderful rewards. And you've just been misunderstood, underappreciated all along. And you come here, and we're going to embrace you, and it's going to be the women's job to to comfort and call to you. And if they don't, then they're just off, and we're going to make sure they know it. The women come in with uh, a lot of the opposite. Like, you're not really – all the things that we've had, we were not supposed to have – we are wicked. We you know, so it's it's a uh, it's harder. We we don't we don't get any of the good stuff. We don't get anything soft and squishy. We get all the hard stuff. So the fact that there's so many Israelite women is just already super amazing, except for the women who come into the truth because they want to be married to whatever guy is already in the truth. That's dangerous, and we really should have an entire section on the women who get wiped into the truth. That's such a unhealthy way to come into the truth because they leave the same way. But um, the reason I'm introducing that factor is that the women who come in, they come in through a really hard road. So they come in broken and they come in sincere and they come in really, really, really wanting not to be bad anymore because it's a little bad. 
We don't want to be bad anymore. We want to please our husbands. We want to please the Most High. We don't want to be um, tied in with these wicked, awful people. So we're really sensitive to things like that. So if you tell us, oh, you know, you're being feminist, that hurts. That bothers us. Wait, that's 100 things. We don't want to do that. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to be good. So when you hear that, that's okay. I, I, I need to check myself. I need to stop that. If you're being told you're not being a good sister, okay, I, I'm going to be sensitive to that. I need to look at that. Let me look at myself. What am I doing wrong? You're being selfish. Let me look at that. Let me stop. They, they are constantly attacking all of the weaknesses, all of our weak points, because we are working, at least sisters that are in the truth, are working really, really hard to be set apart from that previous identity. So when they use these, these um buzzwords, they know what they are. They're buzzwords. And they're buzzwords that are meant to shame us, that are meant to scare us, that are meant to hurt us and make us, you know, reevaluate and say, wait a minute, maybe I maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I am. And and then, you know, mind you, that's not altogether a bad thing. We should always be constantly reevaluating. But the fact is that these people, not all of our brothers, that's always important to say, not all of our brothers, but some of our brothers use this very manipulative, even terroristic language because they know what effect it's going to have on you. They know it's going to make you go back and say, um, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe the way that I'm feeling is wrong. My natural response to this is wicked. My natural responses are hurtful. My natural responses are wrong. I'm not pleasing to the most high because I want. I don't want to to do this or participate in this because I don't understand this because I don't see this the way you see it. The most high doesn't love me anymore. And the and the, and the brothers put it that way. That you're not just not pleasing to them. You're not pleasing to the most high. And that's that's it. You know that's. Precisely why it's so manipulative and so dangerous, and that's why it's so important that you study and that you understand, because your relationship with the Most High protects you from anyone coming between you and telling you you don't have that relationship with the Most High. And it kind of goes back to this idea that your sisterhood can be organized around this man. Like your relationship with the Most High is organized around. This man, your relationship with women, other women, is organized around women. It doesn't give you a lot of room and space for you to have a relationship with your father. Like it's just you and him, and you need that. Yeah, I think we have. I think we've had sessions on this where we really talk about the um, all the stages of womanhood. I know that I've gone over it. Probably talked you guys to death that I have made pretty pictures for the shoot that could follow. But I don't think we've had any real sessions about it. But it's still really, really important that we have all the appropriate stages that you understand what it is to be a daughter and to be precious to the Most High and what your relationship with him means. And then all of these kind of backwards appeals to emotions don't work. Uh, the sense of sisterhood. You know, does it remind anybody else of like back in a world where some guy wanted you to go further than you were comfortable going and you got to, if you loved me, you would do it. <laughs> it's a lot like that. <laughs> it's just, you know, if you do this, if you love me, you would do it. You know, it, Somehow it's a test of your of your sincerity, how far you can go out of your comfort zone. Um, but, 
even that was manipulative. If you love me, you know that it was proper and correct for you to have standards and boundaries. And as long as your standards and boundaries are appropriate, if they are Hebraic, if they are within the law, then you're fine. They're not a better or worse sister for, for participating or not participating in this paradigm. So we're going to go back to 12 where we were talking about all of these extra women. These extra women need to go to the kingdom too. So there are these married women who are covered. And you really can't, and I, I will never underemphasize the importance of being covered um, and being married. This is an extremely important and um, precious and privileged position for a woman to be in. As our men understood um, what that role meant, I mean, because the Most High talks about spreading his mantle over Israel, protecting and covering us, the way he embraces us as as the nation of Israel, as his wife. The fact that he even uses that language is supposed to is supposed to emphasize to us exactly how how pivotal, how important, how how powerful those that that connection is supposed to be. Uh, it, it got it gets kind of lost in the reimagining and the retranslation and modernity, but that's because you know with some some of our brothers totally have it together. Some of our brothers are getting it together. Others others are just in the other category. Uh, I guess this extra. So we're going to examine this idea of extra women. I think that I think that it may come from this notion. This this it's an errant notion. It's not correct. It is not the case. But it's uh, been told to us that there are more women than men. That's you know there that the Mosai then the Mosai that our brothers are scooping up all of these women as a kind of you know service to to the community because there are so many extra women. I mean, you have to get all these extra women covered because there's so many of these extra women. There's the most high high. There's the most high created an imbalance, so that's something the most high would do. But the fact is that if left to the most high creation, boys are created in excess to girls. There are more boys born than girls. Doesn't that make more sense? It makes more sense that the Most High would allow for more boys to be born than for girls to be born, because boys were the ones who went into uh, war. They were the ones that had to do things. They were more uh, physically taxing. So they were more likely to kind of die off, and that would leave the women uncovered. So the Most High didn't create an imbalance. The Most High is not going to... Especially when you go through all of our scriptures that say that, you know, unjust rapes and having things being unbalanced and the most high up the author of confusion. Nothing we have learned about our scrolls indicate that in any way there would be a a deficit of sin for the women. This doesn't make any sense. None of our records show that. If you go into any census, Globally, not even like here or whatever, globally, there are more men than there are women. Still, it doesn't occur that there becomes an inequity in this number. 
until these boys and girls grow up quite a bit, not even in their 20s or 30s. It becomes, it becomes super uneven later into like their 60s. So if you're like 60 and you want to have two wives, okay. But um, in your 20s, it's still pretty even. It's still pretty even. There's no reason for you to go and cover any of these extra. There are no extra women in your 20s. There just aren't any. Um, the fact is that there, even in our communities, it's really because there are still where our young people are pretty much making bad decisions equally. The girls aren't making the best decisions either. Um, but even where our sons are dwindling down their number because they are engaging in high-risk activity and they are doing things that are illicit and illegal and dangerous, and, and, and they are attacking their own numbers. You don't, we don't want to reward that behavior. Okay, so, the, so for you deciding to sacrifice our sons to the modern-day Moloch and dwindle down the numbers, we're going to reward you with new women. That's the most backwards approach to that. If anything, you know, we don't think that's okay. It's not okay to engage in high-risk activity. It's not okay to kill yourself off through drinking and, and drugs and gang violence and sending yourself off to prison. We're not going to reward you by doubling up on the one that didn't do that. That's, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's just a really, it's a, it's a really weird kind of supposition or, or even a suggestion for a sustainable solution in a in a Hebraic community, not a community that is supposed to be about doing the right thing and having good living. If that is the case, we're supposed to be instilling righteous lifestyles in our young people and not saying, listen, you know, we're just going to take an L on the ones that weren't living right and we'll just triple up on the ones that survived it. Like, that's that's, that's not in our scripture. That's not even a, it's not a Hebraic solution. The Most High never said that. That doesn't even, it gets weird. Um, so we'll move on to um, number 13. This is interesting. It's like one of my favorites. <laughs> Someone that I was really laughing in the chat. I kind of wish I was in the chat with you guys. You guys are having fun in there. <laughs> number 13 addresses that unclean wife cannot perform her duties of marriage. So this is where other wives are kind of handy. That's true. I guess, you know, she's unclean. She's not doing a lot of things around the house. And um, what's unfortunate to this particular supposition is that it's completely unsupported by Scripture. Sarah, let's go back to our patriarchs. And let there be no misunderstanding. There are only three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's it. Everybody else are ancestors, our patriarchs, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's go into our patriarchs and time with them. Abraham is married to Sarah for, what, 30 years before she decides that she's going to introduce Hagar into this, into the mix. She throws Hagar into it. 30 years. Not three days, not three years, 30 years. That's Abraham and Sarah for 30 years. That is... 30 years, 12, there's 12 months 
in a year, and there's that. She's unclean once for a period of time in each of those 12 months over the course of 30 years. Abraham goes nowhere, gets nowhere. 30 years. Some of y'all are not even 30 years old, okay? Some of you haven't lived that long. That's how long Abraham stayed with Sarah and just Sarah, being clean and unclean and whatever, whatever else all of that time and got no extra women to perform her duties while she was unclean. That's 360 cycles, by the way. Go ahead. I'm not doing that kind of math. How do you? <laughs> so now we have that's how many cycles that we're talking about over the course of 35, of over 30 years. And Abraham got no women to supplement Sarah. Um, Isaac, Isaac had Rebecca and just Rebecca. Rebecca didn't have any children for, what, 20 years? I'm mad in the film. I didn't write these things down. But it's been like 20 years before Rebecca even has a child. And he doesn't get anybody else ever. It's just Rebecca and Rebecca only. So this idea that monogamy is something that gets invented in the Western world, I don't think that Isaac has been indoctrinated by the Europeans. I think he did that all by his onesies. So we can go ahead and put that to us. Um, but Isaac stays with Rebecca and with Rebecca forever. No one to take over her duties when she becomes unclean. In fact, what do we find Jacob doing? What do, what do we find when Jacob, when Esau returns from hunting, what is Jacob doing? Anybody remember what Jacob is doing? He's making pottage. Jacob's cooking. So, yeah, when people, you can cook. These guys, they can cook. Your wife's unclean, cook something. You're, you're, you won't die. If Jacob could cook, it's, when Isaac could see, he probably could cook too. If your wife is unclean, there's nothing that says you can't pop something in the microwave. You can't put something in the oven. You can cook. You don't need an extra woman. There's no law for that. There's no example for that. There's no scripture that says, and uh, uh, one of the men of Israel realized that his wife was unclean and took a wife. There's no precedent for that. It doesn't exist. These ideas that you get another wood. What we're establishing here is the idea that these are the ways that having an extra wife would be useful to him. But we're not trying to make this. This is not what this is about. If the if the idea is that this is supposed to be Hebraic and it's for the Most High and semantic in that way, then we stick to the let's stick to the script. And the script does not say anything about if you suddenly um, get more land, you're going to need more women to to till the land. I'm listening. Who's saying something? If you suddenly get more land, we're going to need more women. What did the? Did someone hear her clearer than I did? It's breaking up. It was breaking up, right? Did anyone else hear her clearer? I know it was something about getting more land. Like I made the point that. Never was it the case that when a man expanded in wealth that he decided that he needed more women to uh, fill that land. Does someone have an example of that happening? I don't know that. When a man expanded in wealth that he 
he decides to feed more women to uh, do that. I mean, does someone have an example of that happening? I don't know. So, Right, because that's not that's not one of the reasons that you get a wife. Right? You didn't marry to have more farm hands. Like that's not what women are. That's not why you got married. You didn't marry for that reason. You didn't marry to have more farm hands. Like that's not what women are. Right. I'm I'm having difficulty with this call. Is anyone else having difficulty hearing? Yeah, we. I mean, I think we get the gist of what you're saying. It's just. Uh, it's just in and out. I don't know if the connection is bad or, or not, but uh, I think we can look into that. So do you want to recapitulate? Could you just kind of repeat what her main point was? Was it basically what I said or was it contrary to what I said? I think it's the same. I think she's saying the same thing, that we're not I thought so, yeah. Go ahead, sis. Is she there? Maybe she reconnected. I don't know. But yeah, it did sound like it was basically what I was um, saying. That's not what we were there for, and it's not how we got involved in our marriages. Like marriages were not constructed. Like people, you didn't just come and like grab a woman because he suddenly had more land. Like that's not what you did. It wasn't for. It wasn't the quick fix to financial stability was to grab another woman. That's just not how we created our Hebraic household. Uh, <clears throat> so the unclean life thing is not a legitimate uh, reason. The idea of their... Uh, are there any answers? I'm listening. Who has questions? Um, yeah, well, I was thinking about... Um, we had a separate time talking about uncleanness and how long a woman is considered unclean on her cycle and then the duration, I mean, the time that follows... And that was it's definitely explicit about that in the numbers and in the scripture. So I was thinking if it was really that serious for a guy to need another wife because she may be out of service for seven to 14 days or whatever, you know, depending on how, how long her cycle is, it would have been indicated in the scripture, okay, well, this time, you know, there was a replacement. But then we also, I think we've talked about this before, and most women know, like, if you're working with a bunch of women or if you your, your sisters or cousins that you hang out with a lot of times, sometimes you... um you end up on on the same cycle somehow because... Exactly. So it's interesting to think that and why guys would think, oh, well, you know, you're on your cycle, I need somebody else. But then exactly, because they end up syncing up. Right, and sync up over a time period. I don't think that men kind of take into consideration... It's interesting that women don't take that into consideration. Um, when I've heard men make that, argument is kind of understandable but when women miss it up either I, I have to believe either A they they've never been in a a space where they've been with other women or I they don't understand their I don't know. I really don't understand 
why women aren't more conscious about the ways that that doesn't make sense as a solution. I remember, because a lot of you know that I've, I've studied as an Israelite for over 20 years. So when I first came in, um, I came in kind of under, like, the best conditions. I, I might romanticize my memory of it a bit if I'm, if I'm honest about it, but um, why I'm bringing it up is that there was a period, I was very young, I was in my late teens, early 20s, um, when I first began to study as a Israelite. So I moved out. I didn't live with my parents. I lived with sisters. We got a brownstone and we occupied the first floor. And we're young, you know, it's our first year in college, and there's about four of us, super young girls. Right? By our next cycle, we were all like, exactly. <laughs> we were, it was like we 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 studied together, we ate together, we hung out together. So yeah, our cycle synced all the way up and stayed synced for the duration of our time together. And that was uh, particularly odd because I have never been regular. But being around all of these girls that were regular <laughs> just completely ruined my life because all of a sudden I had my issues every month. <laughs> and when they did, and they were all, and um, so for like any of you or anyone else who thinks that I'm like, uh, not nicest person all the this is the way I'm all of the time. My cycle doesn't affect it. The way I am is where I always am. But um these women really responded to their cycles. Like they were totally different people. And I'm just like, wow. It was really weird. <laughs> so that I was it was certain periods of the month they were totally different people. But um I I started to learn a lot more about um my sisters that way because I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't suffer through my cycle. I, I've never had cramps. I don't, I guess that's why my mood doesn't change because I'm not in constant pain. You know, I can understand now because I, I only heard about it. Like, oh, these sisters, these women, they become crabby, they become they the terrible, terrible people. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. If you don't like me today, you know, my period is going to change that. It's just the way I, I always am. But these women were in pain. So, yeah, they were snappy and they were crabby and they went through their emotions, but they were bleeding and they were uncomfortable and they were they were in a lot of pain. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, you try being in a good mood, you know, having all that happening to you. And they were mean to me because I didn't have any cramp. I, I didn't cramp, so they just completely hated me. They're like, what do you mean? I would be mean to you, too. That's not fair. <laughs> They're like, what do you mean? <laughs> Why aren't you going to anything? Think about so, that. You're the exception to the rule that you don't go through the Let me kick you and give you some pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was like, yeah, I wasn't their favorite person either during that part of the month, you know, but. Um, but we definitely all started to sync up. I mean, truth be told, we were all pregnant at the same time. See? I mean, everybody got pregnant that year. <laughs> I mean, there was a point where all of us were pregnant. I mean, and, um, and that wasn't just everybody in that house. Like, my sisters in my age group all got pregnant. Like, there's, I mean, it was really, really bad. There was like two or three hundred of us who like, hung out a lot. Wow. And they were like uh, of the female population. The girls, we there were always not just like one sister pregnant. There was like a group of sisters pregnant, and it was always the group that hung out with each other. That group 
while they're pregnant. We we like popped up in pockets of of predisposers. Like it was that we, because like myself and a couple of other sisters were um, pretty well known in in our particular um, organization, our particular group. We were always creating, we were forever doing somebody's baby shower. We were always in the living room or a kitchen somewhere making tapias or cooking something because somebody was pregnant. Please believe it. And it, it, so anyway, the point is of all this is that women who were very close pretty much began to sync up. And, you know, their cycles began to, to match up. And it's what happens. So... It's interesting that when the men are trying to feed us this, they're not keeping it. Either they don't know, or they think we don't know. That this is going to happen. Just get this off my chest. May I please? Please. Because <laughs> I know I'm outnumbered. <laughs> I know I'm outnumbered, but may I please just get this out of my chest? Always, of course. Okay. I, I just believe that. There are sisters who come into this space through the calling of the Most High, through a spiritual calling, who, is not, who have not had the opportunity to experience a righteous covering. Right. And there are, and, and we're, we're not talking about population or census or anything. You completely put the kibosh on that a long time ago. <laughs> but when it comes to righteous coverings, they're mm-hmm. rare. They're rare, and there are sisters out there who are hungry, and I'm not talking about thirsty thoughts. I'm talking about who are hungry for righteous coverings, and I know mm-hmm. how that can be our righteous coverings, but we're, we're hungry for a righteous covering. We're, we're hungry for sisters and for sisterhood. We're hungry for families, whereas we come from um, families, neighborhoods, communities, and lifestyles where we have you know, um, experience nothing but dysfunction and failure in in those areas. And once we come into the truth, you know, I think that it's necessary that we be yoked to righteous coverings. The problem with that is that there are not enough sisters that are willing to quote-unquote share. It's my personal belief that you cannot share what is not yours. Man was a woman was created for man and not vice versa. So the man never belongs to the woman. Therefore, she cannot. She's not in any position to share. But for the sake of argument, I think the greatest act of love for a sister to do is to share her righteous covering with a righteous sister who is truly not looking to be a homework wrecker, not looking to. Um, it's not even sexual at all, but looking to. Um, um, gain or become a part of an established righteous family that would usher her into what is coming because the 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 hour is late. We are in the end times. It's almost time for the greater exodus. And those mm-hmm. who are not yoked are in trouble. And this is what is prophesied. Seven women will grab on to one man and say, look, we'll provide for ourselves. Just let us be under your covering. We need a covering. Well, you know, let's, let's, let's think about a few of the things that you're saying. We'll start with the last part that you said, um, Isaiah 4, which is obviously like everyone's go But Isaiah 4 is still not, it's, it's not necessarily 
um, physical or mortal limit. And even if it is talking about physical or mortal limit, it's after um, a great deal of uh, massacre. I mean, all the men are dead. Like the Most High has completely killed off uh, all of the men. There's a, a sort of Hang judgment on, what, against. What? Zion. One second. That one, one, one second. I can't hear you. I have to hang up and then go back to the um, hearing you on my computer. I just wanted to say that verbally. Give me one second to hang up so I can hear what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Um, there's a question in the chat, um, in the chat room. So we'll address that while this sister calls back in. What if you're married and your spouse is not righteous or doesn't care to be? Okay, see, here here are the the problems where we are going into a space of emotion, which I guess is is appropriate because we're in our appeal to emotion. We talked previously about what Hebrew families look like, this idea, uh, all these other things, but what if you're already married and the guy's not righteous? We already talked about what ways Hebrews extend households. These other things are just kind of scenarios that were entertaining because of our feelings and, you know, we want to do these things. But in terms of emulating Hebrew models, nothing we're talking about now has anything to do with that. There were only three, and nothing we're talking about now even addresses up there. So basically we're saying those three Hebrew models, let's forget about those. Let's forget about the ways that the Most High sanctioned it. Let's forget about the ways that it was practiced in our culture. Let's talk about this. Now, if we're going to agree to forget about Hebrew culture and talk about how things make us feel, Okay, I, I, but we have to do that with the understanding that we have completely abandoned the Hebrew model and we are only talking about things from a place of emotion and then decide that we're comfortable with that. And if we're comfortable with that, then let's do that. Um, if a man is not righteous, right, and doesn't care to be righteous, obviously he's not in a position to be anybody's covering and should be precluded um uh adjusting this. Um okay, so it looks like okay, but sis, you hung up the sister's informing me that I'm not, I haven't addressed um what she addressed before she hung up. Says I wasn't addressing that first because you were gone and I wanted to give you a chance to return to us. So I was addressing the sister's comment who was still with us and then I would get to yours when you were back. I didn't want to talk about your your question while you weren't around. That's why I'm addressing her question first. Um, okay, so yeah, if someone is married, if you're already married, your spouse is not righteous and doesn't care to be righteous, then yes, he's completely precluded from being a covering to anyone else. To get back to the other sister's um, concerns, like, you know, if, if there is uh, the thought that there aren't a lot of men who are appropriately learned um, aren't 
really rooted well in righteousness or in Torah or in what is necessary. That is true. There aren't a lot of men that are doing that. Oh, there's somebody having a talking in the chat. If what you are saying is that because there are not a lot of men who are currently righteous, that, I don't know, better still. You stated that what about these women who want to be a part of a family, who want to have access to such a brother, who want to feel covered by this brother? I'm re- I am I still maintain the position that I maintained in when we went over uh, 11, the sense of sisterhood. If there's a sisterhood, you know, if you if you saw a family that was stable, that had a, a solid uh, masculine head, and you felt like that brother is on point, I feel like I could learn something from being around this family or I like being among this sister. I want to be a part of her family. You can be her sister without being his wife. You can you can participate in conversations with him. You can ask him questions. You can ask her questions. You can um, not be a part of the world and retreat into their household and and spend Sabbath there and help her, you know, with the children and be a, again be a sister to her without being a wife to him. Specifically, since you noted that it doesn't have to be about sex. So if you're not if you're not having a sexual relationship with this man and what you have with him is a sibling relationship. Again, there's no reason for you to be uh, under this uh, polygamous umbrella, especially if you're going to, on your own, take out the sexual component. And you're saying that what you're looking for is a spiritual connection. You can have a spiritual connection without being his wife. Like, you don't have do that. And it would be really weird to hear a brother say that they're not willing to be a brother to you if you can't have sex with you. He's not willing to be your brother if you're not going to be his wife. Like that, would, that would very quickly make me question whether or not there's this righteous, the righteous covering you're looking for is probably not this guy. If your life doesn't mean anything to him if he can't smash I, I don't think that that's uh, that's that that's not screaming righteous union to me. That's not saying you have a righteous covering there. He has only obligations to you if you guys are in a sexual relationship. That's that's not that's not what you, that's not what you described in saying that what you want. I don't know if you guys have heard this any other time, um, you know, outside of Israel or anything like talking about. Um, when you are looking for any kind of covering or um, anyone to kind of advise you spiritually, if you do it cross uh, gender, like if you're a female and you're talking to a man or a man talking to a woman, there's sometimes there's that vulnerability there that causes doors to open that probably shouldn't. So having accountability is what I'm bringing up there. So if you're looking, you know, you see that family, you see those people that you really think uh, could be a covering for you, be really good in your life at that moment or um, for the duration of your life, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter the time, but um, making sure accountability is there if they're married with their wife or if they're not married, just within 
the congregation and fellowship. I mean, between sisters that you already have established, the new sisters that you're with, uh, even the brothers have an accountability for um, the new relationship that's being made. Um, so, I mean, all that, just all this that we're talking about, we have to, you know, really go back to accountability. And I think I just wanted to bring that up because um, it usually it usually um, protects uh, these relationships and these coverings and uh, headship. So, yeah. Definitely, definitely. That's why, we said, that's why I made a point of saying earlier, you're absolutely correct, that there is a way to be that woman's sister without being his wife. Um, and in terms of, yeah, that kind of cross-counseling um, where a woman is speaking to a man, there, there, is, a, there is that vulnerability. There is that uh, bonding um, that happens because women are attracted to power. And that's just a fact. Women are attracted. I can't relate to it. Okay. They are attracted to power. So a man who has a command of of scripture, a command of this history, a, a, a desire and fire for the most high, all of those things are extremely attractive. They're, it exudes power. And women are attracted to that because a woman's um, desire to be covered and to protect, to be protected, is is to be attracted to the male that is best suited to that kind of like the law of the jungle, like the guy that is the is the is the fittest, you know, for protection purposes, is the one that she's going to want to be attracted to or under. So yeah, there is that attraction when a brother is well versed in this culture and in this. And whatever his particular specialty is, you know, be it history or the language or the law, his brothers tend to be better at certain things. Um, so, yeah, there is that, that idea. And we talked about it, we talked before, that in the cases where a husband is married, it is ideal for him to kind of pass that off to his wife to deal with other sisters because that's what sisterhood is. If he if he's a, a husband and he has that knowledge base and he is that prepared, then before he should be teaching anybody else or covering anybody else, his wife should be pretty well versed. Right? You can't you can't teach another woman if you haven't settled your own household. He should be confident that within his own household, um, the law can be properly Trans, you know, discussed. So it's better for you to talk to that wife to to not have or not to cause discord for order's sake. This has nothing to do with oh the pride of the female, whatever. This is order for order's sake. Um, it's not. We talked about this probably before, but in the common era, this this particular thing gets addressed directly, and it's women's work to teach other women. It's not a man's job to teach you. If you're not married to that man, it's not his job to teach you. It's a woman's job to teach you uh, these things. These other things having to do with history and prophecy and all those things, the idea that that's the property of men to teach is really, really weird too because these are things that who our, former, our, our foremothers would have known. Our ancestors 
would have no our ancestors lived these things. They weren't walking into their marriages like empty headed bobbleheads waiting for somebody to tell them what the law was. They what do you think they they grew up with? They grew up knowing the law. What do you think they learned in their father's house all that time? They didn't walk into their husband's house waiting for oh well now that I'm married I can learn some stuff. No. They learned that before they got married, which is again why we talk about those other stages why there are natural stages of development. So that you're not hungry and thirsty and, 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 and you know, this, this eager sponge that needs to have this. That's a really weird thing because I don't think that there are any, none of our ancestors had that because they grew up with it. Their relationship, they, you really shouldn't be at a deficit coming into a matter. Your job is not to, not to sponge off of him but to you're supposed to be a part of that. You're supposed to be a part of that process, and not if you if you're at the part where you you are so arid and empty and and you need to be filled still, you're not ready to be married. That would be my position. You're not married. You're not ready to be married because you can't contribute to that household. The stages that you needed to grow, you haven't accomplished those yet. You're not yet. Wife material, you're somewhere between daughter and sister um, stages where you're still establishing a foundation, establishing understanding, establishing um, connections, uh, learning. You don't go into a marriage to learn. You don't go into the marriage to to be filled. That's that's not what our marriages are for. None of these daughters with to be. Filled by their husbands, like that's not what our culture. That's not how. I'm, that's the way it's uh, reimagined in modernity, but it's, it's wrong, and that's why there's so many. I said when I, I think the way the session about womanhood begins is that the women are out of order, and we don't like to hear that we're out of order, but we are literally out of order. We are coming in and occupying spaces and stages in the inappropriate order, in, not in the correct order, out of order, not in sequence. We want to be wives before daughters. We want to be mothers before sisters. We want to occupy spaces that we never trained for, prepared for. And um, But the idea that you want to be surrounded by sisters, the idea that you want to be surrounded by love and righteousness, those are all perfectly natural, beautiful, and necessary uh, needs. Like I said, I was spoiled. When I came into truth, I was surrounded by all of those things. I had a lot of sisters. I, um, and it wasn't always good because, you know, you're around a lot of people. There's always going to be some, some people that want to have complications. But um, <clears throat> we, had a lot of, we had a lot of sisterhood. We had a lot of good times. We were very young, but we had a, a lot of that. So, yeah, it's, it's natural, it's normal, and it's necessary. Israel was a a very tight-knit kind of nation. We were nomadic people. We traveled in groups. So the idea that you want to be around other people like you, that, that study like you, believe like you, feel like you, strive like you, natural, normal, and necessary. But um, I think that you can have all that without marrying her husband.
that, I'm not sure if that's understood. Like, does anybody um, understand what I'm saying? And it's not. That's not even a. Just like there's no. There's no um, episode. There's no no example in scripture where when a man became got a new plot of land, it suddenly became necessary for him to get another wife to till it. The same thing is true um, with this. This is not a condition. No one, there is no example in scripture where when a sister just wanted to feel like part of a family or just wanted to find someone to hang out with that was like her or to, to study with someone that she married into their family for that reason. If this is not how our marriages were constructed. This is not why our marriages were constructed. Even if it's for the, I mean, this is a great, this is another example of being great reason, but and an understandable reason, but it's not a Hebraic reason. It is not how our families got extended. It just it just isn't. But it is uh, something that tugs at our feelings and our emotions. It's a wouldn't that be a super act of charity on your part to let me into your family? I mean, yeah. You see, all those pleas, those all those pleas are very much to to my to my love for you. Like you're you're, you're you are appealing to my emotions, you're appealing to my desire to be a good sister to you when you say that to me. But is it but is it our Hebraic model? Is it our law? Right. You just you just said what I was gonna say, like, you know, we really focus as you know, definitely in this group and on, you know, making sure things are accounted for in the law when we do things or when we don't do things. Um, but bringing back into the picture, you know, we're we're ultimately analyzing our ancestors and analyzing our foremothers and forefathers to see how they did things because that is our example. So when we look at our lives today, yeah, it's chaotic at times. It's confusing because we're in a little bit more of a complication than they probably were just because of the day and age that we're in and just the circumstances we live in. But um, looking at, you know, maybe that desire to be a part of a headship or um, a covering, you know, okay, well, what – well, let's look at how it used to be. They, it kind of was already set in stone. They had great parents that raised them, taught them law. Their fathers taught them what it meant to be a daughter and what a, a covering was so that when they were extended to a man, they would already know what to expect. So if we're missing that, then we have to go fill in those elements, know what it means to be a daughter. And you talked about that, filling those pages. So sometimes it's a little bit more complicated than answering that one question. You have to fill in the previous um, aspects of the question. And, and that's where it gets hard and complicated. But um, not letting the the links that we're missing to be fulfilled as women and sisters and and wives um, be manipulated it or be be uh, turned into a manipulation from you know the men or or whoever just because we're not informed or we don't have those positions set up already. So um, yeah, we should definitely yearn to be closer sisters. We should definitely have accountability as sisters. We should have accountability from our elders, our men. Uh, I mean, all over the place, but um, because they're not there right now, uh, don't let it be preyed upon uh, to be a negative, if you know what I mean. I mean, and you were talking about how uh, a sister having that major desire and getting into a relationship because she had a desire to learn and to have a covering and see righteousness and be a part of it. It's kind of a sad story, but, um, yeah, that's an amazing desire. It's an amazing um, passion that she's have developed, but, it's being preyed upon. And so um, just looking at it that way and accountability, once again, I mean, that's my favorite word, um, favorite model. Mm-hmm. List. But um, 
having that accountability within within yourself, within whomever you're getting involved with, whether it's your sister, brother, um, four, you know, four mothers, I mean, sorry, elders, is something that we should always think about and, you know, match up against the scriptures, match up against law, match up against the, the, uh, the accounts that we have. So I'm just kind of keeping that in mind. And uh, we were able to think for ourselves, we're able to uh, analyze for ourselves. So um, it's probably beneficial. Right, right. The other um, point on our list, and thank you for, for breaking it down for us, um, is the idea, and I think this this, this 14th point um, kind of addresses flattery and maybe pride a little, um, this idea of there being a head wife. Like, I'll get this other one, but you're the head wife. You're the first wife who gets to make all the decisions. Idea of there being a head wife, this hierarchy among wives, this favorite, um, or maybe not favorite, but this other kind of, it's a hierarchy. There's, a, there's definite distinctions between these women. Okay, but well, we know that you're not really supposed to have favorite, and being the favorite of your husband doesn't really mean anything in terms of the law. The, you you don't get any protections under the law because you're favored by your husband. Um, and being a headwife, I I don't even know what that's supposed to be. You're supposed to, it's it's interesting because when you get married, you are in submission to whom? You know who you're supposed to submit yourself to when you're married? Your husband. Your husband. So I don't even know what a headwife does. Like, you're not in submission to her. She's head of what? She can't be head of you because your head is your husband. So she's not your head. So the head wife of what exactly? I've seen um, a couple of videos uh, of a polygamous union wherein there is, there were, I think there were two, two women. And one was the first wife in that, in like, can say she was actually literally the first. She was the first wife, and then there's a, a later wife. And when they're discussing their dynamic, they deal with each other. Like, there was almost nothing for him to do. All he did was impregnate them. They, they, if one had a problem, she brought it to the other wife. If, if there was something to organize or to consider in the household, it was done by the, by, they kind of, those two things got handled, all those things got handled within the women. If there was a problem, the women handled it. The issues of money, the women handled it. Every, everything kind of happened between the women except how they wound up pregnant. Who He obviously did that. But if the younger wife was uh, feeling away, she took it to the head wife. All, and the things she said about the head wife, all the things, all the types of praises that, that you would expect for a woman to reserve for her husband. She's so dependable. She's the foundation. She's, um, you know, I rely on her for stability. Those are the things that does, the things that you say about your husband. You know, when we need to study something, I know that she knows it. What exactly was the husband doing? I don't know. But she was the head wife, and that's how, they, that's how she was understood in this video. She was the head wife. 
the younger wife, the younger wife had the uh, amazing, you know, she, she had this really great personality. She was the one that was kind of good with organizing. She kept everything organized. She was the one who reminded them of their schedule, who kept things kind of in, in, um, in order in terms of, um, like, on time. And so she kind of dealt with the efficiency of the household. That was what, you know, that was her responsibility. And um, the head wife worked. Like, if she was the one that brought in all of the, most of the money or the bulk of the money. I'm unclear now in hindsight if the male worked at all, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say he did have a job. But the money was still being brought in by this head wife. So it's it's it still comes off as a as not the appropriate order for things for this woman to be the one who has all of all of these things. So this woman is the one that is in the position of a head at all. She should not be the one occupying that leadership role at all. And um, I guess I I think this goes back. Not completely, but sort of. To when the sister spoke briefly, she brought in she introduced Isaiah four, where where the the female entities in this dialogue are saying things like, "I will bomb." It's interesting, and I I want I want us to pay attention to this because it's interesting that when it's in the context of Isaiah four and one, it's wildly acceptable. Like this is the greatest dialogue ever. These women are saying, "I will." buy my own clothes, I will eat our own bread. These women don't need anything. They're not going to ask for anything. They don't need nothing. This guy doesn't have to provide for them at all. All he has to do is let her call, use his name. To, 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 she wants to cover, she wants to hide behind his name and, and remove her reproach. That's all she needs. Now, under any other context, that sounds exactly like uh, I don't need no man. I can buy my own clothes. I pay my own rent. I buy my own. And that's a, that dialogue from a woman is not okay. Not a, or she would be that ratchet black woman that nobody wants to talk to, nobody wants to acknowledge, and we need to get away from that. I'm gonna buy my. I buy my own clothes. I pay my own rent. I don't need no man to do nothing for me. That's exactly what these women are saying. I don't need him. To pay for my, I'm not asking him for nothing. Why is it okay if, if we if we understand these as legitimate women in Isaiah four and one? How does that sound like a break marriage where these women don't expect for this man to do anything for them? He doesn't have to provide for me. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to do any of the things that all along we're told that a husband is supposed to do. I'm going to get my own, but I'm going to do all these things for myself. You don't do anything. But I have your name. So I have your name. All I have to do is put up your name. That's enough. I'm going to use your name. But I don't need you to do anything else. Me and my six sisters, we don't really need you. That's how, you're pre- that's how it's presented. This man does nothing. If that if that's going to be understood in that way, but that's why it's not understood in that way um, most of the time. Most of the time, Isaiah four and one is understood in the way that uh, the Most High for all this time is is chasing the nations and chasing us to 
to do what we're supposed to do, and enticing us and and, and covering us. In uh, Isaiah three, uh, the daughter of Zion, you know, if you believe that to be the women of Israel, then have at it. Uh, in Ezekiel, it says that the daughter of Zion has all of her hair. And the it, her hair has grown, and that the jewels on her feet have been returned to her, and her beautiful robes, and all these things. So it's just a condemnation of the women and just the women. But that all gets restored to her in Ezekiel. So uh, otherwise, you have to accept that the daughter of Zion is the nation of Israel. Jerusalem is the one that's being um, considered in Isaiah three, and that's why we see it in Isaiah. Um, Ezekiel, uh, the Most High has restored, has restored Zion to its former beauty, has discussed Zion and her beauty, and all of the things that has been um, that was stripped of Zion is restored. Even in, in Isaiah two, and it talks about because you know, we hear a lot about the haughty eyes, the haughty behavior of um, the daughter of. Zion in Isaiah 3, but in Isaiah 2, which is a chapter right before, it speaks about the haughtiness of the men. So, again, it's not, it's really not the best um, approach to assume that the first chapters of Isaiah are talking about mortal women. It's, it's more likely and probably a better practice to understand what's happening in, in these first four chapters in terms of the nations and, and the city of Jerusalem and Zion as as a people and not specifically women. It's not likely that it's talking about just the women. I mean, if that's the case, then the Most High is putting a lot of privilege on just the women because that would have to carry every single time you see daughter of Zion. If you're going to say that it's the women in Isaiah 3, then it's the women in Ezekiel. It's the women when we're talking again in Ezra. It's the women every time you see that. And I don't think the brother's going to give us that. We kind of get Isaiah 3 and that's it. And that's, that's not how study works. So um, this Isaiah's head wife is complicated. I don't... That's obviously... Um, an appeal to your pride. It's an appeal to flattery. It's like, listen, I'm going to get her, but you're the head wife. Yeah, I have this second wife. She has to listen to you. You know, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be, which works the first time. It doesn't work the second or third time because the second wife doesn't the head wife also. So it's just a really weird kind of mechanism to put butter on the process. Uh, and a Stays under this appeal to emotion because obviously none of the things we're talking about so far fit in any of the first three categories. So it's again, we're not trying to vilify or demonize the idea of having um, the idea of extending the household. The purpose of this conversation, this discussion that I'm having with you, is that if we're going to adopt the Hebraic model, that we adopt the Hebraically, and that we don't use this kind of terroristic language, we don't use manipulative language, there's no reason to try to trick a woman into agreeing to participate in a paradigm that belongs to the culture. There's no reason to 
to basically run game on you. I don't, there's no reason to to try to, oh, you know, it's good for the sisterhood. Oh, what about all the miscellaneous extra women? Um, oh, you know, she's unclean. Like, you, you, you're trying too hard. You're doing too much. None of those things are in Scripture. This is not necessary. It's not necessary. And you're not being honest. And that's, like, one of the first things you look at, you're talking about we are people of the truth. Shouldn't you be truthful? This headwriting is just a, another emotional appeal. It's an appeal to flattery. Uh, efficiency. Each woman would have their own responsibilities, chores, and tasks. Okay, so, again, that kind of goes back and visits the idea that the household has to be divvied up, you know, and, you know, these other women function as as, as handmaidens. They're different, like, or, or extra children, like you give children chores. So I'm going to section up my women this way. That's not what... That's not what a marriage is, or that's not what you you marry for, for chores. That's that's a really. It's not supported you, frankly. There's, no one did that in scripture. Um, monogamy is just a westernized concept that we talked already about uh, among our patriarchs. That monogamy was not introduced to them by anybody from the West. Like there were no Europeans that came and introduced it to them. Even if you want to be complicated about Abraham and Jacob, Isaac is a pretty clear example of there being no one but Rebecca. It was just Rebecca, nobody but Rebecca. Even if the argument is to say that um, 12 branches comes from this extended household, which we talked about before, it's not just, there's a lot more going on than just an extended household that brought about the 12 um, branches. Uh, of Israel, but Israel himself is a Israel itself. Israel himself is a product of monogamy. So if you're really going to be uh, upset about something, if you're going to talk about well, what about Israel? Israel is a product of monogamy. You really can't knock it, and you definitely can't say it's a Westernized concept. It clearly is not. It's found in our scriptures. There are several examples of families being monogamous. Uh, we discussed Adam. Adam obviously monogamous. We see with Noah when the Most High basically resets um, creation. He chooses uh, Noah, saying of Noah that he's perfect in his generations. And Noah is the husband of one wife. And it's not just this one model in Noah of monogamy, but there's four. It's Noah, his wife, and each of his three sons have only one wife. So if the most High was going to put forward or he was going to endorse anything, that would have been a time to say, you know, let me introduce you to these other paradigms. But this, but the model that gets reproduced not once, not twice, not three times, but four times is monogamy. So um, that's not to say anything other than it's not a westernized concept. You cannot call it a westernized concept when you find it here. Uh, so let's just kind of, let's just go ahead and bury that and stop using that because that's another way women are manipulated. Oh, you're just tied to the world. Oh, it's because you're from America that you think that. That's not our Hebraic culture. You're being, like, you're ashamed. You're not um, a part, embracing our heritage. Okay, this is our heritage. Noah's our heritage. Those 
four families are our heritage. Isaac and Rebecca, the parents of Israel, are heritage. So um, making it seem like polygamy is the only thing that has anything to do with our heritage, that's necessarily um, not only untruthful, but manipulative. It's definitely not a Hebraic model because every other nation has practices. It's not a set-apart thing. It's not set-apart if other people do it. You can't say it's the specific perquisite of, of Israel if it's something heathen and pagan nations did. And not only did they do it, they did it better at first. So uh, number 16 had to do with uh, the westernized concept supposition. Women are just selfish, that's 17, that women just don't want to share. Um, One of the sisters had an interesting position that women can't, aren't really in the position of sharing uh, her husband because of the order of creation, that women don't really uh, have their husbands because of that. Uh, So women are selfish in that they don't want to that they're not willing to have other people in that involved in their marriage with them. Uh, so, yeah, again, because of the fact that there are so many examples of it not being the case where a woman is required to, expected to, or needs to uh, do any of that, she, she can't be considered selfish for not doing it. Not a matter of it, that's just a, a really uh, necessarily, it's needling and kind of digging at a woman's uh, emotional, saying, listen, you're being selfish. You're, you're not a good sister. You're not considering all these other people. And, like, you're obligated to do that. There's no scripture that says that you have to do that. There are no women who brought in other women because they felt bad for the other woman. That never happened. There's no examples of that. Um, so this issue of selfish, is, it's not a you break issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a tactic, a manipulative tactic. It's an appeal to emotion. Women are for procreation only. Now, this supposition uh, is usually put forward to completely devalue the woman's position in the marriage. If you understand that the only reason that you're married to begin with is you are here to make babies for me. So your your input isn't really required. And uh, since women are for procreation, I need to have a lot of women because my job is to procreate. So all these extra women add to the procreation purpose of womanhood. Like this is by me having more, me being if I, if I was a male in this conversation, by me having more women, I'm allowing them to fulfill their purpose of procreation. How can these women procreate without me? Um, so that's the 18th supposition that women are for procreation only, and for that reason, they neither have any say in how the family is constructed, um, nor should there be any problem with the man wanting to have more of them for that purpose? 
19, the word woman, this is the weirdest thing I, I heard brother say. The word woman itself in Hebrew means servant. Okay, no, it doesn't. So that's just kind of no. We can just go right past that. That's obviously not what the word woman means. The word woman is a feminine to, to male, to man. And uh, even if I gave you the paleo and dropped down every single syllable, which I can do, just I can do it right now, maybe I'll put it in the notes. You still wouldn't get servant from that. Um, there are Hebrew words that mean female servant because they were female servants, but the word woman doesn't mean servant. That's just crazy. Women are possessions only and have no right to say anything about the construction of the family. It's not about them. It's about the men. That's connected to what we said before with 17, women are selfish. Um, uh, and it's kind of connected to what the sister said about being possessed and not in possession of, like, women not being in the position to share and have no rights to say anything. Um, it's interesting because that's not supported in Scripture either, that women had no say. Um, they don't have anything. So we have examples of women having plenty to say. And marriages are never all about the men, in fact, the men don't really have that much participation in the construction of the marriage either. Marriages were constructed by elders, decided by elders. The men pretty much followed along with what their families said. Marriages were between families and not between individuals, so this is not a man-centered um, kind of thing either, and that needs to be understood the final supposition, which would keep us right on time and right on schedule. Oh, no, no, we lost one of our sisters. She's having trouble with um, her connection. She's, uh, hopefully she will be able to catch up and join us. Okay, our final supposition is there are no instances of parameters being preset for a marriage paradigm. That is also 100% not the case. Obviously, the parameters are preset for marriage because they were done by the elders. Um, parents got involved, and marriages are not about the individual. I said that earlier. I'm saying it again. It is not about the couple. It's not about the man. It's not about the woman. It's about the families. What those families took into consideration was not whether or not the couple was compatible, liked each other, looked good together. Um, what the families were concerned about were inheritance. They were concerned about property. They were concerned about um, strengthening ties within the branches. Typically, um, you married within your branch. You didn't even marry outside of your branch if it was um Possible. The preference was that we married within our own branches, specifically because of those concerns about inheritance and property. Uh, and so the idea that there was no preset parameters, that's insane. It's 100% set in a modern mindset where the men uh, have been told or they get recruited in with this uh, idea that it's all about them. They They, they don't get to study that our culture is a collectivistic culture and it involves us as a community. We were not individualistic. Uh, we weren't, it wasn't an individual-centered um, cultural paradigm. 
It wasn't a me, 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 I, I, I kind of thing. Uh, yes, our men are amazing, and they are above par, and they are chosen and beautiful and powerful and all of those things, particularly and especially to us. But the world doesn't revolve around them um, the way they are recruited to believe that they are the way you can't package uh Hebrew culture and in modern styrofoam boxes and try to kind of cross pollinate the the so you cannot. If we're going to understand our life Hebraically, we have to understand the Hebraic context that it was found in. And the marriage model, the marriage paradigm has to do with much broader context than we are than we're used to um seeing now. This idea of meeting and falling in love and the chemistry and do you like me and are you good to me, that's uh, not how things are done. They were, we, our marriages were arranged, our parents made those decisions, we pretty much sucked it up and went along with it. Um, there's a, but because of that, you know, the Most High is not cold and callous and uncaring about our relationships. The law, this is where we can talk about law again, the law provided for if a man was newly married, he could not be charged with work or war for a year. He had to, and it literally says, to stay at home and make his wife happy. So because the, the our culture understood and our culture understands that women are necessarily put in a, a vulnerable position. So now she's in the space where she likely had to leave her family because Israel is a patriarchal, uh, patrilineal, and patrilocal society. Patrilocal meaning that the woman left to be with her father, her, her husband, and their family. So she was necessarily more likely separated from her network and her the things that were familiar to her. So her husband split his home with her and built those bonds with her, made her feel safe, made her feel comfortable um, because he needs her to be on board. He needs her to be in submission to him. She, he, he needs her. He, the law understands that that kind of thing comes from trust. And if I feel safe with you, if I trust you, if I've had time with you, I get to know you, I see how you communicate with me, understand me, you, you're considerate of me, it's easy for me to say, oh, okay, well, I trust this guy, whatever it is. I can follow him. I can follow what he said. I, I know what he's going to do. Yeah, I trust my dad's, you know, judgment, but now I've had this contact with him too, like on this, on this intimate level, more than his obligation to my family, more than his fear of my father. Um, we have had this personal connection during this year together. And that's written in the law, that understanding about what the couple needs happens in the law. So that's the 21st um, supposition about there is no instance of parameters being preset for the marriage paradigm. I think that some of that really comes from the men not liking the idea that a woman can say, because a lot of the times we have these conversations with you about having... um, talk before agreeing to marry about what you are, what you can 
reasonably handle. Okay, if you know that polygamy, even under all the Hebraic conditions possibly, you can't handle that, you should have that conversation up front. And um, set that those parameters. This is not. This is a deal breaker for me. There cannot be this kind of paradigm. It's not something that I am comfortable with. It's not something that I'm going to participate in. This is not for me. So I'm not going to say that you can't pursue it. I'm just saying that if you do, I can't be a part of your your life. And um, the brothers would have you would say. Some brothers would say you really don't have the right to say even that. So there's no instance of of that kind of stipulation being put on the marriage. And that's not entirely true either. Um, like when we talk about Jacob, Jacob who gets tricked. You know, you talk about him being tricked into having two women. Laban who initiates this. Right, Levant, who uh, initiates this kind of two-woman scenario, also puts it into it. He says, listen, you know, you're, you and I, let's talk man-to-man. Okay, he takes Jacob out man-to-man. They sit down and you can't have any other women besides my daughter. My daughter. Don't marry anybody else besides my daughter. That stipulation is set. They put, they put there's a contract between them, and they put stones. There's something solid tangible and, and um, perceptible, something you can perceive and touch. It's right there between the rocks. They put they let these stones be witnessed between us. This is our, our covenant. So, uh, yeah, a parameter being preset for there being uh, a limit to how this gets extended happens. It totally happens. LeBond does it. So the idea that you can't tell a man or that it can't be discussed with this man that um, additional women can't be added to the household, obviously not true. That doesn't um, correspond. Uh, There's a uh, comment in the chat that says, in the case of Noah, you are correct, but in other cases, one must not assume that since only one wife was mentioned in scripture, that it that it was the only wife of the man mentioned. Okay, that's true, but uh, I didn't say that there were, were any the cases that I mentioned for there being only one each is what I was doing. I don't think that I made the statement that that in other cases where only one where only one wife was mentioned, she was the only wife. I'm really not sure how to address that because it's not a statement that I made, so it would be difficult for me to defend a position I didn't take. Uh, sure, there are other examples where only one woman is mentioned. I guess you could... Uh, I, I guess you could imagine that despite the fact that only one woman is men- I can't even think of an example where that could be the case, but um, uh, I'd be interested if the guest that's bringing that up had an example of where only one wife is mentioned, but there might be other hidden wives that aren't mentioned. I, that would be interesting, but again, it wouldn't really address my point because my point was that in the beginning, when there was creation, there was only one man and one woman. And then when the Most High reset creation, 
there was, again, only one man and one woman and in four different sets. In order for this to be attached to that statement, there would have to be a third creation where there's a man who has only one wife mentioned but could potentially have had other wives that were not mentioned. For that to be um, part of what I'm saying, I'm only talking about how the Most High created something and not, I I, I at no point said that there were no um, marriages that didn't consist of other people. So I want that to be clear. That's not the point that I was making at all. So um, I just saw that in our in our chat, and I wanted to address it and clarify that, that I am, of course, not saying that a man didn't have more than one wife. Absolutely. Uh, our men had more than one wife. I suppose it is possible that in some of these accounts, only one of them were mentioned by name. I'm sure, in fact, I could probably think of quite a few where only one is mentioned by name because only one of them are of any particular value. For example, I guess you could even, you could even, uh, I, I guess probably any number of the kings that had more than one wife, only uh, the queen who was the mother of the heir apparent is mentioned by name and the others just probably aren't. But that wasn't the point I was making. So, I hope that was I hope that clarifies that. Um so that's all the assumptions or suppositions that fall under session three. That was eleven through twenty one. Our next session is um the appeal to authority. Um so Unless there's anything we want to add to this one, good. We can do our shaloms. Unless there's anything that anyone wants to ask or add. Okay. All right, sisters, it was really, really good talking to you and having this discussion with you guys again. Uh, I think the sister is trying to talk to me. Is this all me? Are we still live? The sister is commenting now on my end. I don't know. I think I think I may have addressed that. I think I met her now. I think I addressed her. Cool. Uh, go ahead. Is there anything you want to say? Is there anything that anybody wants to say? No, I think it was a good session. Lots of information. Lots of information. Okay, cool. Awesome. So, uh, as always, we the recording will end here, but we can always pick up the conversation in the forum. Any questions that you didn't ask here or were uncomfortable asking here or just didn't think of, while talking here, you can always ask in the forum, and we can continue our conversations there. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.